Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, I receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to our 100th episode. I purchased new recording equipment a few months back, and it came with a bunch of corny sound effects. Never thought I'd use it, but today seemed appropriate. I promise not to make it a regular thing. This episode sums up the events before the U.S. officially enters World War II. We cover a lot here including the fall of many neutral countries, Italy and Japan officially coming into the war, and some of the preparations made by the Marine Corps before the U.S. officially entered World War II. The episode ends with Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor and remarks by Churchill. On December 8th, President Roosevelt delivered his famous Day of Infamy speech, and I included it at the end of the episode in case you've never heard it before. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Germany's invasion forced Britain and France to honor their alliance with Poland. They declared war on Germany two days later. However, many other European nations were still recovering from the First World War, and they wanted to distance themselves from a potential conflict. Dozens of countries declared neutrality at the beginning of the war, but their status did little, and belligerents invaded several over the next few years. Germany already had their eyes on northern European countries and wanted their resources and military installations to help with the potential confrontation with Allied forces. Hitler's approach to war with Great Britain was straightforward on paper. He planned to starve them into surrender. Germany's Atlantic strategy involved deploying U-boats and targeting merchant ships delivering supplies to Britain. But although it seems simple, the main problems Hitler faced with this plan was that the German Navy, known as the Kriegsmarine, didn't have the naval installations necessary to support activity outside of the North Sea. Erich Raider led the German Navy during the first two-thirds of World War II. He proposed a plan to establish bases in Norway, which would supply the necessary resources to support their agenda. German leadership heavily debated this plan. One of the leading arguments in favor of Raider's strategy was that securing Norway would protect Germany's iron supply line. Over half of Germany's iron ore came from Sweden. But in the winter, many of those Swedish ports froze and supplies were routed through Norway's ports. 
30% alone came directly from Narvik. If Allied forces stopped the flow of these supplies, Germany would lack the material needed to support their war. Adolf Hitler published instructions and strategic plans he expected to be followed to the letter. Hitler's directives, or Fuhrer directives, superseded any other law, including their constitution. On November 29, 1939, Hitler released Directive No. 9, Instructions for Warfare Against the Economy of the Enemy. Hitler officially called for operations that would cripple the English economy. Germany's military leaders immediately began planning for an invasion of Norway and Denmark to support his commands. I'll post a link to the directives on the website so you could dig in if you'd like. Norway was a neutral country at the start of the war, and Hitler used their status as a warning to Germany. In a perfect world, their neutrality meant that the Royal Navy couldn't attack ships transporting iron to Germany while they were in Norwegian waters. But in reality, no one had to honor their status. The reward for stopping German supplies far outweighed the risk from Norway, and Hitler assumed Britain would violate neutrality terms and attack vessels delivering goods to Germany. He also argued that Allied forces might seize important ports, effectively cutting Germany from its iron supply. Striking first would protect resources and give Germany the additional ports needed to support their navy. On February 16, 1940, Hitler's warnings were validated when British destroyers attacked the German tanker Altmark in Norwegian waters. Germany used this incident to justify an invasion, which included Denmark. This was another important area. Whoever controlled the Skagerrak Strait, that's the area of water between Denmark, the southeast coast of Norway, and the west coast of Sweden, controlled access to the Baltic Sea. Maintaining this area was vital in keeping the Allied Navy out. Less than two weeks later, Hitler issued a new directive that called for the invasion of Norway and Denmark. Like Poland, the strategy for this attack was the element of surprise. And it was a surprise. At 1.30 in the morning, on April 9, 1940, the aide to King Haakon of Norway woke him up and said, quote, Majesty, we are at war, unquote. The king's response was, against whom? A fleet of naval warships advanced towards the Oslo Fjord. At 4.40 in the morning, the batteries at the Norwegian forts responded by firing at the incoming enemy. While the navy was fighting, German infantry and a motorized division began their attack and crossed the border of Denmark. The Danes were outnumbered, poorly equipped, and the population was too small to hold out against a superior army for any length of time. Germany offered an ultimatum to Denmark. In return for a quick surrender, the current government could stay in control of its civilian affairs. If they didn't surrender, Germany would bomb the capital of Copenhagen. The Danes agreed to these terms, and Denmark fell in about six hours, making it one of the shortest military operations in World War II. While Denmark was under attack, the German Navy traveled north towards their primary target. The Royal Navy assumed that they were heading towards the Atlantic Ocean to attack merchant vessels, and in response, Great Britain sent their ships to meet them, which left the North Sea unprotected. 
Germany was able to land its troops in central and southern Norway and faced very little resistance from sea. Multiple cities were captured without much of a fight. When Great Britain realized what Germany was up to, they quickly headed towards Norway. But Germany had already obtained its objectives, and the Royal Navy strategy changed to one that was more reactionary. Norway fell in about two months, and 300,000 Germans were garrisoned in the country for the rest of the war. There were a couple of impacts this attack had on the war. Germany lost multiple ships supporting this objective, which will impact upcoming campaigns. Winston Churchill described this loss as, quote, a major importance potentially affecting the whole future of the war, unquote. It also exposed Germany's inexperience with conducting large amphibious operations. They didn't have amphibious capabilities. Landings would either be accomplished via small boats or by backing up to a pier. With Hitler's directive completed, Germany began eyeballing their next target. The French have been preparing for another German invasion since the end of World War I. They invested a lot of money in building the impenetrable Maginot Line. In all reality, it wasn't designed to be impenetrable. This defense structure's goal was to hold German forces for about 20 days, giving the French enough time for additional resources and possibly launching a counterattack. This massive fortification is 280 miles long and includes dozens of fortresses, underground bunkers, entertainment for the troops, like movie theaters, hospitals, minefields, a train system to transport supplies, and gun batteries. The construction cost more than $10 billion in today's value. However, the project wasn't completed when World War II started, which exposed some gaps. The French also left some areas open and relied on natural defenses, such as thick forest and mountains, assuming it would be adequate. The following month, Germany invaded Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. Their strategy was like the one used in World War I, which we covered in episode 85, the second part of our World War I introduction. Before the attack, the Germans were outnumbered by a million men, and French had superior mechanized tanks and aviation. But the failure of French leadership and an exploitation of a gap in the Maginot Line quickly turned the tide in Germany's favor. The French assumed the thick forest near the Belgian border would provide a natural defense. The Germans were able to exploit this weakness, encircle Allied forces, and conquer France in six weeks. France was one of the dominant empires of the time and had the fourth largest army and navy in the world. This defeat significantly impacted the morale of Allied forces. In 1940, the French army was 10 times larger than the British army, but by the end of the war, their strength was 10 times smaller. Germany captured 1.5 million Frenchmen during this campaign. Conquering France also meant that Germany now had access to French colonies worldwide. Those who did not die or escaped remained POWs or were slave laborers in Germany for the duration of the war. The main Allied powers were only Great Britain and France. Every country in continental Europe that had neither allied with Germany nor managed to preserve its neutrality was under Nazi control. Shortly before France surrendered to Germany, 
Italy declared war on France and Great Britain, officially bringing them into World War II. When Italy joined, the war truly began to go global. Colonies started to get into the mix, and skirmishes between the British and Italians began to happen across North Africa. A few days after France fell, Winston Churchill gave his famous Their Finest Hour speech and said, quote, What General Vagon called the Battle of France is over. I expect the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Unquote. Three weeks later, Germany launched an attack on Britain. This battle was the first major military campaign fought entirely by air forces. Germany began by attacking shipping and ports in the English Channel, forcing the Royal Air Force into defensive action. This attack intended to destroy as many British aircraft as possible, gain air superiority, and hopefully negotiate a peace settlement with Britain. On July 16th, Hitler ordered troops to prepare for an invasion called Operation Sea Lion, which included a land invasion into Britain. Grand Admiral Eric Rader constantly pointed out how impractical his plan was, highlighting the weak amphibious landing performance in Norway and the lack of ships needed to fight the Royal Navy. On top of that, Germany failed to gain air superiority in Britain. By the end of October 1940, Hitler postponed the invasion indefinitely, and the Battle of Britain ended. This Allied victory was a significant turning point in the war. Psychologically, it was a massive win for the British. It also stopped Germany from taking over all of Europe. But as it relates to this podcast, Great Britain's victory changed the opinion of many U.S. citizens. When the Battle of Britain first kicked off, only 35% of Americans believed their government should risk war to help the British. That support continued to rise through the battle, and by April 1941, it had jumped to 68%. President Franklin D. Roosevelt gave his Arsenal of Democracy speech. He stressed that it was not the government, but the American people who had the power to turn the tide of the war. On June 22, 1941, Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, which is one of the biggest mistakes in the war. Fuhrer Directive 21, Invasion of the Soviet Union, was the largest military ground assault in history. It was made up of over 3.5 million German and other Axis troops attacking along an 1,800-mile front. 148 divisions, 80% of the German army, were committed to this attack. 17 Panzer divisions with 3,400 tanks were supported by 2,700 aircraft. This betrayal by Hitler caused the Soviet Union to join the Allies shortly after the invasion. Millions died during this attack. But in six months, the Soviet Union would defeat the Germans. Over in Japan, half of their military was supporting a war with China. The Japanese soon realized that their invasion wouldn't solve their resource problem and they began to extend their reach into other nearby territories, which all belonged to the United States, France, and Great Britain. Local colonies contained raw materials such as tin, rubber, and petroleum, which were essential to Japan's industrial economy. Seizing these territories would make the country self-sufficient 
and help them become the dominant power in the Pacific Ocean. When Japanese troops entered northern Indochina in September 1940, the United States protested the invasion. However, Germany and Italy had a different opinion, and they recognized Japan as the leading power in the Far East. The three countries formalized their allegiance by signing the Tripartite Pact on September 27, 1940. The agreement pledged that each nation would help one another in the event of an attack, quote, by a power not already engaged in war, unquote. This statement was a specific call out to the United States. Japan immediately takes advantage of this new friendship, and with France down, they take control of French Indochina, modern-day Vietnam and Cambodia. In retaliation against this and other attacks in the Pacific, President Franklin Roosevelt seized all Japanese assets in the United States and issued an oil embargo against Japan. Britain and the East Indies issued similar restrictions. This resulted in three-quarters of Japan's trade and 88% of its oil disappearing. They had about three years' worth of reserves, but with the war going on, that supply could essentially be cut in half. The Japanese couldn't support their militaristic ambitions without oil and launched a retaliation of their own by going on the offensive in the Pacific. Over several hours, on December 7, 1941, or 8th, depending on what side of the international dateline you're on, Japan launched a series of attacks throughout Southeast Asia and the Pacific. They attacked British Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong, which was a British possession at the time, Thailand, and the Dutch East Indies, an excellent spot for oil. These attacks also included U.S. territories such as Guam, Wake Island, and the most famous, Pearl Harbor. All three we are going to get to in dedicated episodes. Before Japan attacked, the United States was a neutral country in the European War, albeit we did provide our friends with a lot of supplies. The U.S. officially proclaimed its neutrality four days after Germany invaded Poland, but that doesn't mean Marines were standing idly by. The Commandant ordered a reconnaissance party, commanded by Marine Captain Samuel G. Taxis, to Midway to perform an initial survey. The advance party included two Marine officers, eight enlisted Marines, and two Navy corpsmen. They sailed for Midway on September 23, 1940. The Midway Detachment, Fleet Marine Force, was commanded by Major C. Roberts and consisted of nine officers and 168 enlisted men. When they arrived, they immediately set to work establishing a camp and setting up defenses. During the six months that followed, the Marines set up heavy weapons and fire control equipment, dug holes in the sand for machine gun bunkers, command posts, underground sleeping quarters, and ammunition magazines. The excavated sand was deposited in thick layers over the roof of each dugout, and the dugout was then camouflaged with brush that was removed when constructing the airfield. During the summer of 1940, Major Alfred R. Pefley made a detailed survey of Tutuila, the largest island in American Samoa, and prepared a clear plan for its defense. The Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, 
directed that defense recommendations made by Major Pefley were to be implemented immediately, consisting primarily of the construction of defense gun positions on various Pacific islands. On October 5th of the same year, the Secretary of the Navy ordered all organized reserve divisions and aviation squadrons on call for active duty. The Air Detachment, Marine Barracks, Paris Island, which would later be called Marine Corps Air Station Paris Island, was organized. Ten days later, the Corps issued general mobilization orders to the personnel of all reserve battalions, directing that they be assigned to active duty not later than November 9, 1940. And by the end of the year, all aviation units of the organized Marine Corps Reserve were mobilized. Reserve squadrons were disbanded and their personnel was assigned to active duty. The 7th Defense Battalion, a composite infantry artillery unit, was organized at San Diego for service on the main island of American Samoa. On February 1, 1941, Marine brigades stationed on the east and west coasts of the United States were officially activated as the 1st and 2nd Marine Divisions. By June, the 1st Marine Brigade, commanded by Brigadier General John Marston, was formally organized at Charleston, South Carolina for duty in Iceland. A couple of months before all of this happened, Congress approved the 5th Supplemental National Defense Appropriation Act of 1941 providing $14.5 million for establishing a Marine Corps training area on the East Coast. By the end of June, the Marine Corps was close to three times its size than it was two years prior and had a total of 54,359 Marines. 3,339 were officers and 51,020 were enlisted. By July, the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Woods, was organized at Quantico, and the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing, commanded by Colonel Francis P. Mulcahy, was organized at San Diego. The following month, an advance party from the 1st Defense Battalion arrived on Wake Island. Marine security guards were also activated at the American Embassy in London, England. In the third volume of British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's the Second World War, he wrote of his emotions after hearing that Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor. I'll post his whole message on the website. It's pretty damn flattering. But Churchill closes with, quote, Silly people, and there were many, not only in enemy countries, might discount the force of the United States. Some said they were soft, others that they would never be united. They would fool around at a distance. They would never come to grips. They would never stand bloodletting. Their democracy and system of recurrent elections would paralyze their war effort. They would be just a vague blur on the horizon to friend or foe. Now we should see the weakness of this numerous but remote, wealthy, and talkative people. But I had studied the American Civil War, fought out to the last desperate inch, American blood flowed in my veins. I thought of a remark which Edward Gray had made to me more than 30 years before, that the United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful.
unquote. In the early afternoon on December 7, 1941, Franklin D. Roosevelt was finishing lunch in his Oval Office. He was on the second floor of the White House, preparing to work on his stamp album. He received a call from Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, and he was briefed about Pearl Harbor. He called in his secretary, Grace Tolley, and asked her to start dictating the short message he would present to Congress. Roosevelt delivered his speech at 12.30 p.m. It was quickly brought to a vote and passed the Senate and the House by 1.10 p.m. Almost unanimously, it passed 82 to nothing in the Senate and 388 to 1 in the House. Roosevelt signed the declaration at 4.10 p.m. the same day, officially bringing the United States into World War II. I'll leave you with Roosevelt's famous speech. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleagues delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya, 
Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very light and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire.
Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll break down Marines at Pearl Harbor. This week's audiobook is The Man Who Killed the Luftwaffe by J.A. Stout. This book is a fascinating read about preparations made by the United States Air Force to meet the challenges of the German Luftwaffe. I love these underdog stories. And it's fascinating to read how a few men in the Air Force essentially took an immature military branch and turned it into one of the most formidable air powers in the world. The author of this book is a retired Marine Corps fighter pilot who flew over 4,500 flight hours, including 37 combat missions during Operation Desert Storm. So not only do you get a good story, you're supporting a Marine. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.